Well, if you've got a Bible, open up to the book of Galatians. Galatians, in particular, will be in chapter 1. So we've preached two sermons in Galatians so far. Um, we've talked about it, but the, the other pastors, the other elders, they'll start a series in 1 Samuel, Lord willing, this coming Sunday. And, uh, and then they'll start um, taking turns in 1 Samuel, and then I'll continue on in Galatians. But this morning, we're in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24. There's ESV Bibles right out the door here on the tables. If you'd like to have one, that's what I'll be preaching from. If you want to have that there, it'll certainly be helpful for you to be looking at a copy of God's Word. And it might be helpful for you to look at the, the back of the worship guide there. There's sort of a bare bones outline. could be helpful for you if, if you keep an eye on that. So Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24. <laughs> um, every now and then, uh, Maria will hear a noise in the house at nighttime. And she'll usually ask me the same question. She'll get real. This, I'm sure, is not unusual. She'll get real still, and she'll say, what was that? Um, and I actually haven't done this in a while. I was thinking about this, but, but I've learned where her mind goes, you know, in instances like that. So, so I would usually say something like, I'm not sure what that was, but I'm sure it wasn't somebody breaking into the house. And, and, and the reason that I was confident of that, because the truth is it, it could be that, I mean, that's, that's happened before, but the reason that I'm confident it's not two main reasons. First, that explanation is just really unlikely. That happens, but but it's unlikely. And then second, there are 20 other explanations that are really likely. So it could be the ice maker dropping ice. It could be the wind outside, right? It could be creaky floors, a kid getting up. It could be an animal outside. That happened more in Maine than it has here, but there's animals here. Tons of more likely explanations than somebody breaking into our house. But But every now and then, there'll be an explanation for something that on the face of it seems unlikely but it's really the only option available as, as unlikely and unusual as it seems. And that's what Paul is talking to us about this morning. So hear the word of the Lord, Galatians 1, 11 through 24. He says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Okay, so, so Paul's been reminding the Galatians of the gospel he had preached to them. That was the last passage that we preached in Galatians, the middle of chapter one there. But remember, there's, there's these false teachers, and they're attacking Paul's message. And, and, and what we find out is they're not only attacking Paul's message, they're also attacking his authority. 
they're attacking his origin, where he came from. They're saying that he doesn't have good motives. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Look again at how our passage begins. The second half of verse 12. He says, I received it, talking about the gospel, through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so Paul's saying, I didn't invent this gospel. The one I've been preaching to you, I, I didn't make it up. But see, this is, this is probably what the false teachers were saying, that Paul had just put this message together himself. So when the Galatians hear Paul say that this message was given to him by Jesus, they, they'd probably wonder, okay, well, how do we know that, Paul? Because these other guys, these false teachers, are saying the exact opposite of that. They're saying this isn't from Christ at all. They're saying that this message is, is just from you. Well, the primary thing Paul's doing in this section of Galatians is answering that charge, answering that question. Paul, Paul's like a lawyer here, and he's going to give four pieces of evidence to show that his gospel was given to him directly by Jesus. Now, the first three pieces of evidence come by Paul pointing to his past life before he became a Christian, noting the change which had occurred in him. And then the fourth comes from directly after his conversion, after he's become a Christian. So first piece of evidence Paul gives that his message really is from Jesus is that before his conversion, he had hated the church. That's our first point here. Paul had hated the church. Verse 13 he says, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. So Paul used to hate the church. And that hate in his heart had spilled over into actual persecution, an actual literal attack on Christians. In fact, the first time we meet Paul on the pages of scripture is at the death of the first Christian martyr. You remember that? So it's in the book of Acts. Chapter 7 and 8, you've got this guy named Stephen, who was a deacon in the church in Jerusalem. He's preaching the gospel, and this crowd attacks him and kills him. Well, this is the first time we're introduced to Paul, whose name then was Saul. This is Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. So he's happy about it. That's the first time we get to see Paul. But, but it gets even worse than that. So this is Acts chapter 9, verse 1. One chapter later. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if any was found belonging to the way, that's what they refer to as Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Paul wasn't just disinterested in the church of Jesus Christ. He, he hated it. And he hated it because he thought Jesus was only a man and Paul knew that anybody who was merely a man who claimed to be God, that is a bad situation. That's blasphemy. That's evil. So Paul would do anything he had to do to destroy Christianity. Listen to Acts chapter 26, verse 9 and following. This is later on in his ministry, the end of the book of Acts. Paul is summarizing his form, <clears throat> former life. This is what he says. Acts 26, verse 9. He says, I myself was convinced that I, that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. 
So Paul hated the church, locked up Christians, tried to see that they were murdered, tried to get them to blaspheme, to turn their back on Christ. So that's what Paul is trying to do. That's how committed he was to his hatred of the church. And it's helpful to pause at this point and recognize that God can save anybody. Isn't that good to remember? This is Paul. He was a bad guy. Evil. It doesn't get more evil than this. Trying to convince people to turn away from Jesus at the threat of physical punishment and, and imprisonment. That is as evil as it gets. That was Paul. But God can save anybody. That's so good to remember. There's no limit on the amount of grace God can extend to a sinner. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, and you might think to yourself, I could never be a Christian because of sin in my life. Maybe past sin or maybe present sin, and you think I'm just too bad. There's too much sin here for God to forgive. Well, just think about Paul, who again is systematically arresting Jesus' followers, having them killed. Paul was worse than you are, and yet God forgave Paul. That's because God's grace isn't limited. Jesus' work on the cross isn't limited. It will cover every sin that a sinner brings to Christ. It's a good reminder for us as Christians too, isn't it? Aren't there people in your life that you think, I would love for this person to come to Christ, but it is never going to happen. They are just too far gone. And I think probably there's people sitting in this room that are Christians now that people would have thought that about us. They certainly would have been tempted to think about Paul. But God does that. He saves sinners. His grace is unlimited. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 13 through 16. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. If God forgive, could forgive Paul, he can forgive any of us. Praise the Lord. Okay, so, so Paul's telling the Galatians all of this, and he's asking them to, to take that guy, that old Paul that was persecuting the church and set him next to the Paul that they know now. Flip a page over to Galatians 4. Galatians 4, verse 19. Look at what Paul says there. He says, he's talking to the Galatians. He says, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So there's one thing the Galatians know. It's they know that Paul loves the church. He loves them. He's like a parent. He, can, he compares himself to a mother here says, my little children. Now look at verse 13 again in our passage. So Paul went from somebody who was working hard to destroy the church to one who was working hard to nurture the church. And Paul's question to them is, how do you explain that? How do you explain that 180 degree turn? What, what worldly reason could there possibly be for me to turn around like that? and love this thing, the church, that I used to hate. That's the first piece of evidence he gives. Second piece of evidence that Paul points to is the fact that before his conversion, he was a rising star in Judaism, which is the Jewish religion. Look at verse 14 in our passage. 
He says, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So Paul was a good Jew as far as everybody else was concerned. And when it came to his future with Judaism, the sky was the limit. The sky was the limit. Flip over to Philippians 3, a few pages. He, he goes into some biographical detail of his past, his spot in Judaism. This is Philippians 3, verse 5. Paul's talking about himself. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Okay, so we can draw several things from this passage. Paul was circumcised on the eighth day. He mentions that because that shows he wasn't a convert to Judaism. He was born into it. He had a, a lineage here. It's the same thing he's getting at when he says of the tribe of Benjamin. A lot of Jews didn't know their lineage. They didn't know which tribe they came from. Paul did. So his family had kind of always been blue bloods, right? So I don't know if anybody uh, is watched the playoff games yesterday, college football, but TCU, Texas Christian, probably wasn't supposed to win that game for multiple reasons that we can talk about after the service if you want to, but but one reason that they weren't, quote unquote, supposed to win is because they're not a blue blood. So those other three teams, in the eyes of everybody, they're supposed to be there. Those football traditions have been around for a long time, right? There's a pedigree there. TCU is kind of the odd man out. Well, Paul was one of those blue bloods. His family knew where they came from. The tribe of Benjamin, who was Jacob's son. So Paul was born into a serious Jewish family. But not only that, his family had actually set him aside for ministerial training. So from a young age, they basically had groomed him to be a leader in Judaism. We're told back in the book of Acts that from an early age, he'd been trained by the most notable Jewish teacher of the day, this guy named Gamaliel. And he was a Pharisee, Gamaliel was. You remember the Pharisees are the groups of Jews that Jesus is always butting heads with in, in the gospel stories. They were the strictest Jewish sect. They were seen as the group that was really serious about the Old Testament law. And, and that was where Paul had received his training. So when it came to Judaism, studying under Gamaliel was kind of like going to an Ivy League institution. It was the cream of the crop. And that's the, the training that Paul got. So he came from good stock, goes to the best school. But not only that, he tells us once he became a Pharisee, he says he was righteous and blameless under the law. So, so when it came to the rules of Judaism, Paul was a pro. Everybody was really impressed with him. Like he says here in Philippians, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Okay, so, so back to our passage now. For all these reasons, it makes sense what Paul says in verse 14. He says, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So Paul is shooting up the ranks of the Pharisees. He was advancing quicker than anybody else. And all this to say, when it came to Judaism, Paul was in a really good spot. He had a really bright future. Now, now in our culture, it's kind of hard to understand this. Being a religious leader doesn't mean a ton in our culture. But in Paul's day, the religious leaders were the most important people. We've got to understand that piece here. He's a rising star in Judaism. But in that day and age, to be a rising star in Judaism was the best thing you could have going. So those religious leaders, they, they were almost a mix between academics and politicians and celebrities. So if you add all of that together, academics, politicians, 
celebrities. That's how those folks were seen. They, they were seen as the smartest folks in that culture. So they were academics in that way. They, they were the folks who usually had the last word in conversations with people. So there's a group of people arguing. If there's a Pharisee there, he's going to be the have the last word. And everybody's sort of going to default to him. But, but they were also like politicians because they were the ones who were actually leading the people. Remember that word, the Sanhedrin? was that group of Jewish leaders that under the Roman Empire, but the Roman Empire gave them a decent amount of, of leeway to make decisions. They're the ones that are governing the people in Jerusalem. But see, because of how important people saw them, they, they were also like our modern day celebrities. So if there had been cell phones in the, in the first century in the ancient Near East, people would have wanted selfies. I assume that's still a thing, unfortunately. Maybe it's not. That's who people would have wanted a selfie with was these religious leaders, these, these Pharisees. They, they were some of the most popular folks in the entire society. And all of that is what Paul had before he was a Christian. And he left it all behind. He turned his back on it. That is something. I'll give you more of a modern day example. Not as intense, but kind of intense. Many of you will know the name Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a pastor in London at Westminster Chapel in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. He had been a, a successful doctor. He was a young doctor in London, one of the best surgeons there, an up-and-comer. And he decides to leave the medical profession and become a pastor. And there, it's hard to imagine, but again, it was a different day and age. There were front-page stories in London papers basically saying, why is this man doing this? It blew their mind. Nobody knew what to do with it. He had prestige. He had money. The sky was the limit. He turned away from all of it. And this is great. A newspaper reporter's asking him about that. Lloyd-Jones hated to talk about himself, but everybody keeps asking these questions. And he says, why did you do this? And this is what Lloyd-Jones says. He says, I gave up nothing. I gained everything. Isn't that good? I gave up nothing. I gained everything. That's the way that Paul was. He turned his back on all of that. He was set up for comfort for the rest of his life he turned his back on it. What, what worldly reason could he have for giving up that prestige, that comfort of being a Pharisee? He turns away from it 180 degrees, and his question to the Galatians is, why would I do that? What worldly reason is there for it? He goes on to give a third piece of evidence. He, he points to the fact that Judaism wasn't just a career path for him. No, he'd actually loved the Jewish religion. Paul had loved the Jewish religion. Look at the second half of verse 14. He says, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So, so he wasn't just like a guy who grew up in a family and his dad is kind of like, all right, this is the family business. You're going to do it. And he's kind of dragging his feet the, the whole way just to make his parents happy. No, Paul loved Judaism. He, he loved being a Pharisee. That's why in that Philippians passage we looked at a minute ago, he, he says he was so zealous for it that he persecuted the church. There were a lot of Pharisees that didn't go that far. Paul did because he loved Judaism. And the reason we're told that he, that he did that is because he's, he's zealous for the Jewish religion. He thought Judaism was perfect. Judaism didn't just have his head, it also had his heart. So, so let's think about this for a second in, in, in terms that maybe are more helpful for us. Think about somebody you know who loves the University of North Carolina, loves Chapel Hill, 
loves the basketball team, loves the football team, loves the campus, loves the colors. They love all of it. Now think about that person all of a sudden turning on a dime and saying, you know what? I think I'm going to throw in with Duke. I think I'm going to be a Duke fan from here on out. That'd be something. I think that probably you probably have not known anybody that has done that. That'd be a, a shocking thing. Doesn't happen very often. Th those of you who keep up with politics, think about how often you'll see a senator or a representative who reclassifies their party affiliation from Republican, not to independent, from Republican to Democrat or from Democrat to Republican. It happens sometimes, but not often. You, you know why you don't see changes like that that often? It's because those institutions don't just have their followers' heads. They have their hearts. Well, that was Paul. Judaism had his heart. He loved the Jewish religion. And so his question to the Galatians is, how do you explain that? How do you explain the fact that I loved Judaism so much that I physically attacked people who I thought were a threat to it? How do you explain the fact that now I've completely turned my back on that version of it? I've turned my back on Judaism. What worldly reason could there possibly be for that turn? Okay, so, so what's the answer here? Paul had hated the church. He was a rising star in Judaism, and he loved the Jewish religion. So what's the explanation for the 180-degree turn? Well, Paul's answer, the explanation is found in verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So the explanation for the change in Paul is Jesus. Jesus had revealed himself to Paul. We mentioned this a few weeks ago, but, but on one of his journeys to arrest Christians, you remember this, Acts 9, when Paul's converted, he's headed down the road, Jesus literally shows up to him, and Jesus saves him. So you can imagine that Jesus showing up where you can actually see him. Literally, he is there and he calls you away from your sins and, and to, to trust in Christ. Well, guess how long it took Paul to, to trade in his Phariseeism and become a Christian? He did it that very second. Makes sense, doesn't it? Guess how many Christians Paul persecuted after that? None. Paul was changed. He was changed on the spot forever. And that makes sense, doesn't it? The, the reason Paul had such a dramatic turnaround is because he literally met Christ. That is the best explanation of his life. And of course, a lot of you can relate to this, right? S several folks in this room, you, you didn't grow up trusting in Christ. You can remember time as a non-Christian, and you can remember becoming a Christian. Many of us are in that boat being recreated by the gospel. And, and instantly your life started to look different, didn't it? That happened quickly. I know when I became a Christian my sophomore year in high school, my language instantly changed on a dime, one minute to the next. I, I started to obey my parents. I started to not talk behind folks behind their backs. I didn't do all of that perfectly, but, but the change was substantial. People noticed. I was a new creation, and many of you have had that same sort of experience. And if that's you, then whenever you doubt the truth of Christianity, because that's a thing that happens, right? All of us, there's going to be times where we think, is this real? Is there something I'm missing here? Could, could this be wrong? I think all of us have those thoughts from time to time. 
But this is one remedy, many remedies to that kind of doubt, but this is one of them. When you start to doubt that truth, think about your own history with the Lord, because that's Paul's exact application here in this passage. The Galatians were caught between believing that Paul's words were from the Lord or disbelieving they were from the Lord, like those false teachers were saying. And, and to help them trust in God's word, Paul reminds them of the change the gospel had brought to his life. So when you find yourself doubting God's word, remember that it's this word that has changed you. The word is alive. It really is from the Lord. And it shows fruit because it changes us, changes in the past, and it continues to change us. There was an Anglican minister in England in the 18th century named John Newton. He's the one that wrote Amazing Grace, who sang yesterday at, at the memorial service. He, he was actually instrumental in abolishing the slave trade in England. But this is the way he would think about it when he started to have doubts. This is what he would say. He said, I am not what I ought to be. So he's confessing the fact I'm still a sinner, right? Even as a Christian, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I wish to be. I'm not what I hope to be. Yet I can truly say I am not what I once was. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And God will use that same truth to, to help battle your doubts. So remember how you've seen the word work in you and change you, transform you. So if you're a parent, you, you've seen yourself go against the cultural grain, haven't you? When it comes to parenting your kids, that's not easy. But you've seen yourself do it. Or if you're a, if you're a student, you've seen yourself go against the crowd to please the Lord. Stuff like that is, is evidence that the gospel is real. The Bible is really God's word. It's, it's transformed you. It's changed you. And if you're here and you're not a Christian or you don't know what you think about Jesus, this gospel will change you in those same sorts of ways. If you'll merely turn from your sin, turn from relying on yourself and turn to Christ in the real gospel, he'll cover your sins and he will transform you. So if you're interested in talking more about that, come, come talk to me. Come talk to one of the other elders in, in this church. You might think you're, you're stuck in a particular way of life, stuck in certain sin, and you are unless you'll come to Jesus, but he will free you from those things. And for those of us who are Christians, of course, that's exactly what's happened to us. We've been made new creations just like Paul was. And we need to pause for a second and, and make sure we don't get the wrong idea about this. That, that change in us, it's not a reason for us to be prideful. We're always going to be tempted to pride. Human nature, it's like it's, uh, it's just always ready. It's spring-loaded to be prideful. It's easy to do that, but look at what Paul reminds us about in verse 15, about the change in him and the change in us. Verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. So notice in verse 16 who the active agent is. Who's the one that does the changing? It's not Paul. It's the Lord. He had set Paul apart. He had called him. He revealed the son to him. In Acts 9, Paul's not marching to try to find Jesus. No, Jesus comes after Paul. That's how salvation works. The Bible's clear. Until God changes somebody's heart, that person is not going to be interested in trusting in Christ. Jesus has to show up and reveal himself. So, so for Paul, there was no reason to brag about being a Christian. The, the fact that he met Jesus wasn't Paul's doing. It was God's doing. He says it explicitly in verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, that's something, isn't it? He had set Paul apart before Paul was born. If you're here and you're a Christian, 
He set you apart for salvation before you were born. God's choice of who he saves, it doesn't have anything to do with us, with how ethical we are, how good we are, how, how smart. If, if you're a Christian, the Bible gives one reason why you're a Christian. In verse 15, it's two words, his grace. So the change we've been talking about in Paul, the change you've experienced, if, if you're a, a Christian, that's not a reason for any of us to get a big head. It's only because of God's grace. But that's exactly what he wants the Galatians to see. He wants them to see the change in him is because of God's grace. There's no worldly explanation for it. The only explanation is otherworldly. Look again at what he says, verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul's telling the Galatians and, and us here this morning that we can believe that these words are from God because these words changed Paul and they've changed us in a way that there is no worldly explanation for. And that's really the main point of this passage. There's no worldly explanation for the change that occurred in Paul. The most reasonable explanation is that he really did encounter the risen Christ. But, but as we close, even with all those reasons Paul has just given, he knows there's still a rebuttal. There's still something the false teachers could say. They could say something like, okay, maybe Paul really does believe his message is from Jesus. Maybe Paul's genuine in that. Maybe he really believes that. But, but he definitely didn't get that message in any supernatural way. No, he probably just heard it from the other apostles, right? So Paul really believes it's true, fine. But he probably just got his message, the gospel message from the other apostles. You remember the earliest followers of Jesus, those closest followers in his earthly ministry, the apostles. So they're saying, yeah, Paul probably just buddied up with those guys and he's just parroting what they said. He's just repeating it. God didn't give it to him. And see a lot of folks in our culture, they, they think that same sort of thing. There's a lot of people that think, yeah, Paul was genuine. So I don't think Paul was trying to deceive anybody. I don't think the, uh, the authors of scripture were trying to deceive anybody, but they were just kind of crazy, <laughs> you know? But they got sold a bill of goods that they believe but shouldn't have. Okay, so does Paul mention anything here that would, that would press back on that charge, that would answer it? He does. It's our final point this morning, verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So what Paul's saying is he didn't collaborate with the other apostles. That's our final point this morning. Paul did not collaborate with the other apostles. If you read the account of his conversion in Acts 9, what you'll notice is when he becomes a Christian, he jumps right into ministry. He just starts proclaiming the gospel and evangelizing right away. He, he didn't take time to go sit at the feet of the apostles in the Jerusalem church. No, he, he goes straight into ministry, and he goes on like that for three years. Look at verse 18 in our passage. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. So after he'd been preaching his message for three years, he finally meets two of the apostles. Not all of them, just two. Cephas, which is another name for Peter, 
and then James, who's Jesus' brother. But even then, he only spends two weeks with those guys. Okay, so, so let's put this in perspective. Think of Paul compared to me. And I use me because I know my own history the best, right? So Paul, Paul had a much better handle on Christianity than I do. But, but if it was true that he just learned his Christianity from the apostles, then that would mean that Paul learned more in two weeks than I learned in four years of graduate school, nine years of pastoral ministry, I don't know, 20 years of, of Christian life. Now, Paul was a lot smarter than I am, but I'm telling you, that's not feasible. It's not feasible that the guy who wrote Galatians and Romans, who even non-Christian students of literature will tell you are pieces of art, basically, with how smartly they're reasoned, his understanding of scripture, that's not going to come from two weeks of trying to learn from a couple apostles. No, his message came from somewhere other than those apostles. Verse 12 is the only scenario that makes sense of all this. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So, again, we can think historically about this. Basically, what happened in the first century with Christianity is you had this initial small group of guys, the apostles. They had been Jesus' closest followers. He's crucified, raised from the dead, ascended. Jesus commissioned them to preach the gospel. That's exactly what they do. That gospel message about Jesus, it's a new message. Nobody in the world had heard it at that point. In particular, the part about the resurrection, they're the first ones talking about it. And then out of nowhere, you've got Paul show up and start preaching the exact same gospel. The same message, which no one else had ever heard. Paul's preaching the same message, which, which wouldn't necessarily be miraculous, except for the fact that those two groups didn't collaborate. They, they didn't sync up their messages, and yet they're found to be preaching the exact same message. Here's what that would be like. I'll give two examples that I feel like could cover probably most of us sitting here. The first one does not cover me at all. I wish it did, but the Lord knows what he's doing. Let's say there's two guys that build their own houses, right? So let's say there's a Charlie Bird here in North Carolina, and there's an equivalent to Charlie Bird out in California. And they both come up with plans for their houses. They've never met. They've never talked. They come up with plans for their houses that they work on by themselves. And let's say they build those houses and then they meet one another and they realize they have the exact same house, same layout, same materials, same square footage, all the way down to the, the same brass hardware that's in the bathrooms. That would be an incredible thing. Nobody would think, okay, there's a worldly explanation for that. That doesn't happen. Or think about two musicians. They've never met. They both write a song. And then they get together and they realize they've written the exact same song, same lyrics, same tempo, same key, the whole nine yards, same thing. Nobody would think that was a natural occurrence. Paul's point here is that the gospel is the same way. Two different groups, Paul and the apostles, they didn't collaborate. They're preaching the exact same message. And again, this, this is completely different from every other world religion. This is so wild. People, people don't think about this. This is something. Every other world religion starts with one guy. Every one of them. It's not a group of folks. It's one guy, and then he convinces a group, and then they kind of convince other people. But it all starts from one guy who, you know, was in the woods, and the Lord talked to him. You know, or he was in a cave, and an angel talked to him. 
That's how every other world religion works. Christianity is different than that. In Christianity, you've got the apostles teaching the gospel message over here, and then you've got this guy, Paul, who comes out of nowhere, and unbeknownst to the apostles, remember, they were skeptical of him at first. Unbeknownst to the apostles, he starts preaching the exact same message. And the explanation for that is that the gospel we hear about every Sunday, the gospel we read about in the Bible, wasn't invented by men. It was handed down by God himself. Verse 11, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And don't forget what we looked at earlier, that the other guy preaching this same gospel is Paul. The same Paul who hated the church enough to try to destroy it. The same Paul who had a really bright future as a Pharisee and turned his back on all of that. Had a deep love for Judaism, turned his back on that. He leaves all of it behind. And he embraces this message that's at odds with what he had believed up until then his entire life. And it's the same Paul who had been preaching this gospel for over 15 years by the time he writes Galatians. 15 years where he could have backed down and gone back to Judaism. He could have decided, you know what, this is kind of crazy. I'm going to go back. He doesn't do that. He never changes his mind. We have more than enough reason from God to believe that the words that are sitting in our lap right now are the very words of God, don't we? There's no worldly explanation for Paul's life or for the gospel message. That's because it's not Paul's gospel. It's not from men. It's from God. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Let's pray. And Father, we're so thankful that your word is so clearly your word. And Father, we, we understand we will have doubts about it because we're in the flesh and we're weak. We're sinners. But Father, we praise you that none of those doubts is actually justified. We take great comfort in that. Father, your word is as true and real as the floor that is under our feet right now. And Father, we can rest our lives on that truth because it really is a word from you. We're so thankful that you've revealed your son in the gospel to us in this word. Take a moment now to pray silently and individually. Pray the Holy Spirit would press these truths onto your heart. Take a moment to do that now individually and silently.